0: Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, with me today is a guest that I'm excited about because I think she's going to give us a, a different perspective than we often get on, on the show. Uh, Kelsey Bench is a colleague of mine at Tusk uh, Strategies. Uh, we work together on a lot of different projects. And I wanted to have her on for a few reasons. One, she has a really interesting background in both tech and policy and really covers a lot of stuff we talk about in this podcast. But two, she is the most sensible millennial I know. Um, and, and what I wanted to do was get a millennial on and ask a lot of questions about how their generation sees things, or at least how she sees them. Um, and, and because we talk a lot about the future and policy and everything else, but we don't really talk to the people who actually it will impact the most. And so, Kelsey, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I really I deeply appreciate that description as being a sensible millennial. I like that.
0: Yeah, we we had a whole secret competition, and you won. So
1: <laughs> fantastic!
0: Um, so just just quickly for the audience, just run through both what you do at Tusk and then kind of what you did before that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a senior vice president at Tusk, Tusk which means that I run campaigns for clients. Um, the range from real huge variety of sectors, doing some in kind of um, biotech and and health sectors to some of the big retail giants and, you know, really running the gamut on issues. Um, But what we do is run complex campaigns to solve really difficult issues for them. And um, I do a lot of work in terms of setting political strategy, policy strategy, as well as communication strategy. So, that is what I'm doing at Tusk. Uh, Prior to joining Tusk, I actually started my career in advocacy communications, working for a few nonprofits, but then kind of moved into the more political landscape. I worked uh, immediately before joining Tusk for five years for BMW, uh, doing federal government affairs for them, working primarily on trade issues, but uh, tech, uh, tax, anything else that um, impacted the company. So my, my background is is really kind of a mix of policy and communications, but also a sprinkling of uh, Europe, which is something that has been really important to me my entire professional and academic career. I uh, studied German and communications at the University of Michigan, um, and then I also did a you master's. You speak in- German, right? I do speak German, yeah. it's. answer yeah, that
0: in German. I, I, I had to say no in German nine. I'm not even sure. How do you say yes in German? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intuitive, honestly. Um, yeah, and I ended up getting a master's degree at, at Georgetown in the School of uh, Foreign Service, which was really focused on uh, Europe and, and European international relations with a, a specialty in Germany. And that was really what what got me interested in kind of moving towards my, my career towards Europe and, and got me connected with BMW. So um, that is, that's the background. Well,
0: that's a hell of a background. So look, let's start broad and then we'll kind of dig in on specifics, which is. Okay. So you are in your early 30s. You've got most of your life way ahead of you. Uh, We live in a world that's both uh, really promising in some ways and really scary in others. Let's start on the positive. What are you excited about for the future, whether it's kind of personally or just how you think the world's going to evolve in ways that you think are good?
1: I'm really excited about a lot of the tough conversations that I think we're having culturally, societally for the first time. I think we're we're grappling with some really big, difficult issues in a meaningful way that I think is going to um, push us towards positive change. And I know that's a really, really broad answer. But Specific examples, I think, are just the conversations we're having around mental health and mental wellness. The conversations we're having around race and equality and equity, you know, uh, gender equity. And and I think people are becoming uh, a bit more comfortable with having the difficult conversations. And that is only going to serve to push us in a direction that is going to be better for everyone.
0: How much social media do you use personally?
1: more than I would like to admit. I think <laughs> I primarily am on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Those are my two, my two vices.
0: And do you see a, well, one, do you view them generally as positive societal forces or negative?
1: Um, <laughs> it's funny you just asked me how to say yes and no in German, because one of my favorite German words is yain which is a mix of yes and no. And I feel like that is going to be my answer for a lot of these questions. It's, you know, <laughs> I love the connection that we are able to generate and there are so many people from different areas of my life that I'm able to maintain that connection with because of social media and that feels really special you know I love that I can I can tap into those those networks that otherwise would have required a a whole different set of engagement for me to maintain. But it is really damaging and it's really hard. I mean, I don't need to tell you how, how hard it is to start your day on Twitter and just read all of the terrible things that are happening and then go be a functioning person out in the world. So I think there are ways to use it that are healthy and there are ways to use it that are not.
0: So in terms of future technologies, let me throw a few at you and you tell me, one, you know, how real or not you think they are, and two, like how excited you are in terms of their application to, to your life. Let's start in a world that you came from. So self-driving cars.
1: I think it's an incredibly exciting possibility. I, you know, <laughs> don't want to sound too skeptical. Like we, there was all of this talk about self-driving cars by 2020. And obviously we've blown past that and we're not there yet. So I think that, um, it is going to be a reality at some point, obviously there's a long way to go. Um, but I think it, it's awesome. I, I don't drive in New York city. I, I don't, Generally, like driving periods, the idea of being able to get from place A to place B without having to actually steer a car sounds pretty darn nice to me.
0: All right. So, h- how about flying cars, or for those who don't know, you know, EVTOL?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to see that in my lifetime.
0: Okay. So, you, th- but though there are something like Hugo's, like eighty-six startups working on some version of electronic, you know, uh, you know, take off and landing, vertical takeoff and landing. Um, you don't think that that happens in the next? Let's 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 get you to a hundred. So roughly seventy years.
1: Maybe on a small and elite scale, um, but I don't necessarily think for for mass adoption. It, there are just a lot of problems to solve before we get to that point. I think
0: um, blockchain.
1: Blockchain, I see massive potential in, um, and I think. The kind of current angst about the crypto world and you know nfts and rug pulls and bad actors is really detracting from the fundamental technology and how much good it can actually do um you know one of the things we talk a lot about which is super exciting to me is is the way that it can um, provide opportunities for equitable access to credit and to financial systems and to banking systems that previously excluded whole populations of people. Um, those technologies are, are in existence right now and I think have amazing uh, potential to impact.
0: Artificial intelligence.
1: Ooh, artificial intelligence is also already here. and. Um, I think it can do some really good things. I think that we need to be mindful of the unconscious and conscious biases that human ha- humans have um, that are inevitably going to be baked into any kind of algorithms that we are writing. Um, so huge potential, but needs to be adopted and executed in a really mindful way. Digital health. Digital health also huge. I think during the pandemic, people were forced to interact with telehealth in a way that they probably would never have before. The potential that it has for both um, preventative healthcare, but also access for communities that don't um, you know, have physical access to, to healthcare spaces, rural communities, places where it's really difficult to get to hospitals and ask a doctor your question. It's got huge potential. Um, obviously, it needs to go hand in hand with ensuring you know broadband is available to people in those places, and that there are you know technological adoption and, and and things of that nature to ensure that you know older populations aren't being left behind. But for those who have a hard time accessing traditional healthcare systems, massive potential.
0: Uh, a complete conversion to, to renewable energy in the next twenty years
1: next 20 feels overly optimistic in the
0: us and let's call it to 2050 let's make it 28 years
1: yeah i still feel like that feels overly optimistic just given our reliance just given our reliance on non-renewable fuel sources and also the just political and social um, aspects of loyalty to fossil fuels it's a complicated situation in the US. But I mean, I think the global situation currently is pushing us in some interesting directions in terms of, um, you know, where we source our energy and and how we think about it and how we consume it. So I'm optimistic we're moving in the right direction. I just think that, you know, 2020 is is optimistic.
0: Fair (laughs) enough. Let me drill down a a little more energy then, which is uh, nuclear. I think most Experts would say it really needs to be a big part of the solution to, to getting to all renewable. Um, but sort of culturally, politically, there's obviously a lot of latent fear about it. Um, I'm making you now the voice of your generation. Do <laughs> are millennials afraid of nuclear or do they just feel like, of course, we should do it?
1: I think American millennials are less afraid of it. You know, we <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the cultural the cultural um, moments that really like solidified the fear around nuclear in our, in our minds. And Chernobyl happened when I was, you know, not old enough to care. Um, so I think that the the fear of nuclear is not quite as intense for people in my generation. And obviously the conversation is different depending on where you are. Like the conversation around nuclear in Germany is incredibly complex and and has a, a, a very different kind of cultural, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, like it has a very different cultural, different cultural baggage around it. Than it does in the United States. Um, So I can't speak for millennials worldwide, but I think that the angst for American millennials is less intense.
0: Last on the the positive technology, and then I'm going to depress you for a while. Um, Things like carbon capture and the ability, whether or not we've converted to renewables fully, but just the ability of technology to ultimately solve many of the same problems that we created because of technology in climate change.
1: I think there's some really cool things happening in the space. I mean, you know, we've worked with companies who are using blockchain to play in the carbon market and to to drive up the the price of carbon credits, so it it you know becomes more expensive for people to be uh, carbon intensive and 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 incentivizes companies to focus on on you know renewable energy sources and and their carbon impact. I think there's some huge potential there. Like, Obviously, there are, are massive existing problems in the way that we're addressing this stuff, but we're pushing in the right direction and there are a lot of really smart people thinking about how to apply some of these emerging technologies in ways that I think really are going to have an impact in the future.
0: All right. So I'm on, as firewall listeners know, a text chain of political consultants, and it's all sort of middle-aged guy, white guys, Jewish guys, actually. Um, and we are almost by nature, slightly depressives, um, maybe me. Um, so we often, I often, like, actually, I, I can't now say the statement and then claim that I'm not a depressive. Um, I like every so often to force them to rank how much they fear each of the following as the likely scenario of the end of the world as we know it. Right. So the, the, the things in the mix tend to be uh, nuclear holocaust, um, climate change. A pandemic that is sort of much much worse than than COVID, or you know, violence, sort of dissolution of society, whatever else. And then I guess the fifth, sometimes we put on the list, would be kind of uh, AI
1: and sort of you know computers taking over. Um, which one? Do you
0: worry about any of those things?
1: Uh, climate change on a daily basis. Okay. <laughs> on a daily basis, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I live in on the east side of Manhattan in an area that was completely submerged during Superstorm Sandy and I, and we're seeing more and more extreme weather events. That's something that is constantly in my head. You know, me and my husband now are talking about potentially having kids and it's that that's part of the conversation is like, is this really a situation we feel comfortable passing on to? Do
0: you, do you have friends who are choosing not to have kids for that specific reason?
1: I think it would be overly reductive to say that's the only reason, but that definitely is a part of the calculus.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty remarkable because I think I think in my Hugh and I probably wouldn't have really any any examples uh, of of that at all. Um, why aren't you more scared about a nuclear holocaust? I mean, the reality is that could do in a an hour what will take climate change decades.
1: <laughs> Can I give you an equally cynical answer? Um, yeah, please. <laughs> you know, during the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and, you know, when things were, were looking really dicey and people had their fingers hovering over, you know, the launch buttons, the joke that my friends and I kept making was like, well, we don't really want to live in a world post nuclear Holocaust. So if we're in New York city and it gets wiped off the map, like that is maybe best case scenario. Like, I think, I I think at that point, you know, we're all kind of We're all kind of done and that maybe is not the worst or at least the the most prolonged way to go i think climate change is scarier because it is so uh slow and it's in many ways imperceptible and um something like nuclear holocaust like that that gets people moving that gets people to change really quickly whereas like climate change is pretty easy to ignore for most people
0: right i mean that's some reasons why maybe i worry less about death via nuclear holocaust compared to sort of the impact of climate change, which is if you accept that basically everyone acts in their self-interest all the time, which is probably how we generally should act big picture, um, no one really wants to die, you know, in a nuclear war, right? So as a result, despite all the saber rattling, it doesn't actually ever happen. Um, now there's the risk of, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un or someone, but, but overall um, it doesn't, li- the war, or nuclear war itself doesn't line up with human incentives and benefit. Whereas on climate change, big picture, long term, it's incredibly destructive to all of us. But short picture, people want the new car. They want air conditioning. They want whatever it is. Um, and by the way, especially people like in China and India who aren't even in the middle class right now just want to join it. It's hard to blame them for wanting the stuff that we just have had in our lives for you know for decades. So um, yeah, that, that to me is sort of it. Do you worry at all about like AI and and the computers taking over and symbiosis and all that kind of stuff.
1: You know, I'm more worried about what I mentioned when you asked about AI, which is just an over reliance, I think, on on AI to make important decisions when inherently, I think it's it's biased towards the people that design it. I feel that way about all technology. It's going to be biased towards the perspective of the people that create it and so long as, you know, big tech and algorithms and the people playing in this space tend to be primarily, you know, white men, which, you know, no knocks against white men, but but there needs to be more diversity in those spaces if, if yeah. um, AI is going to evolve in an, in an inclusive way.
0: Yeah, that was, that was I don't know how much attention paid to it, but the bill that we passed on the New York City Council last mm-hmm. year was specifically around kind of requiring more diversity in AI. And we actually had a guest recently who didn't wasn't aware that we were the ones that passed the bill and was going off on how terrible it was, uh, but he was a white guy. Um, so all right, I'm going to make you ruler of the world now, and I'm going to give you three changes you can make, not like, all. Oh, Nukes or all, you know, uh, greenhouse gases disappear. But three public policy changes that you can make, and they can be U.S. specific or global. Um, but they're around, kind of addressing the concerns uh, of your generation. What would they be?
1: I think I can speak most authoritatively from a, a U.S. political perspective. I always say that my first magic wand ask would be. Um, campaign finance reform, which I know is maybe shooting myself in the foot a little bit as somebody who uses, you know, corporate donations as a, as a political tool. But, but I think that, um, you know, Citizens United has done some really terrible things for our political system and taking the, the massive corporate dollars out of politics would do a world of good for just getting new viewpoints into, to Congress. So that would be, that would be a big one. Um, I would also think about term limits. Uh, that's another big one. and I don't you know think that they would have to be short term limits, but I think there needs to be more turnover in Congress. And I say this as somebody who obviously is a millennial and is starting to see some really interesting millennial representation in Congress. but you know even as somebody who really is tapped into and cares about the the Gen Z ethos, and it's gonna be a long time before those voices, have the ability to get into Congress just because it's, you know, the incumbent always has the advantage. People are really entrenched. So term limits could do a world of good and sure. just pushing our legislative priorities in a in a more representative direction. Um you got one more. Oh geez. That's tough. <laughs> I'm like those are my two big ones. Those would take care of all right
0: let's let's move on the conversation and then if, if it pops back into your head, just 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 jump back Well, away. you know what?
1: Actually I will because this is also relevant to the work we do. So for the third one, I think I would say um, just making democracy more accessible to people, making it easier to vote. I would love... Perhaps
0: mobile voting?
1: Perhaps mobile voting. Exactly. No, I think that, you know, there's so now, many... Now you
0: just suck it up to the boss. But okay. I'm,
1: I'm not... I mean, I'm brown-nosing a little bit, but also, like, it just... It is wild to me that our voting system and our approach towards voting and civic engagement is as antiquated as it is. Like, meet people where they are, make it as easy as possible for people to engage. And you're going to have a democracy that is substantially more representative than it is currently.
0: All right, so switching topics a little bit here. So I'm Gen X and my children are Gen Z, right? And one thing we all have in common is we complain about you. About millennials, <laughs> uh, and it seems like you're a very easy group to kind of you know make fun of and and and, and you know demonize in various ways. How do you feel about Gen X and Gen Z? I,
1: I I will answer that, but I would also like to know what you feel about millennials. I don't know if I I, I fully grasp the criticisms coming from both ends, so I think it would be helpful. Right, I'll, I'll give you.
0: you. So o- overall, I would say, look, my exposure to millennials tends to really be. Professional, right? It's people mm-hmm. like you at work, and it's it's a little self selecting because we try to only hire insanely talented people. Um, and then, of course, all of your interactions with me are tempered by the fact that I'm the boss, right? So, um, with that said, like I do think that the priorities for millennials are different and not necessarily bad. I think that I do see some entitlement that I don't love and. Would, would prefer people to sort of be a little scrappier and a little uh, a little feeling a little less entitled to just getting what they want because they, they exist. Um, at the same time, though, like the, one of the things that really surprised me was, as, as you know, we didn't really mandate specific kind of back-to-the-office policies, you know, once the sort of worst of COVID passed because you guys were very productive during the pandemic and it didn't seem necessary to force anyone to stop doing things the way that they prefer to do them. I kind of assume, though, that because the people who are in the office on a regular basis are, tend to be the older people who are also the people in charge, that there would be more millennials coming in purely out of ambition by the notion of, um, I want the people in charge to see how dedicated I am. I want uh, This is a chance to have more access to them because there are a few people around. This is an opportunity. And that hasn't really happened. And first, I was just like, oh... They just don't care enough but but then kind of where I've evolved to was they have a fundamentally different view about the balance of life between you know work and, and everything else and that's probably a much healthier balance than, than what I have right I just work like crazy <laughs> um, so um, so you know I, I think in some ways this generation may be, more evolved uh, certainly when you mentioned before things like like gender equality and fluidity i very much so think that that's a, that's a great thing um at the same time yeah there is a little bit of of entitlement although i suspect every generation feels that about the generation directly below them
1: i was just going to say so many of the things you just said i have been reflected in conversations between me and my peers about gen z i think everybody thinks the next generation coming in is is lazy and entitled. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think that about Gen Z writ large. I, I, I think Gen Z actually is, is doing some really awesome and exciting things. And I draw a lot of inspiration from the kind of ethos of Gen Z. But, um, but no, I, I do think that there is definitely a, a priority shift for us. And it, I think millennials are dealing with the kind of ramifications of a lot of decisions that were made by previous generations and you know i think gen x is, is in the same position in a lot of ways too but you think about things like student loan debt and the fact that we're all you know I'm, I'm in my mid-30s now and we're all dealing with these big questions of like can i have kids can i afford a home are these are the things that my parents had going to be available to me and in the world looks really different than it did for older generations and there's a degree of resentment there, yes, um, but also I think that forces a shift towards, you know, okay, so the trappings of adulthood that we were told to expect may not be accessible to us, so where are we going to drive our joy and our identity? And and that has, I think, created a push towards looking outside of the workplace and and saying, you know, what do the connections in my life mean to me? What do my hobbies mean to me? My job doesn't have to be my entire identity. And if it is, that's okay, too. But, but I think that that has to do with the fact that just like you know, we're in a situation that, that doesn't reflect the same place our parents were when they were in their 30s. Right. It's,
0: right. I mean, I, I think and it's funny because I, I have the same thing for the generation before us. Um, it seems to me that there was this golden period in the world, or at least in the United States, in the Western world, from 1945 to 2020, right? So from the end of World War II until COVID. Um, in that, yes, there were wars and all kinds of problems, but fundamentally, the the standard of living globally went way way up. Um, you know, life expectancy went way way up. Uh, access to, to basic needs went way. You know, you know, food, clothing, electricity, all that stuff went way way up. Um, the amount of human rights that people have have gone way, way up, even though it's not nearly enough just yet. Um, and there was a sort of a golden period, even if we didn't see it at the time, even if we complained all the way through it. And then COVID sort of reset the world to a certain extent. Um, and, and now you know you've got a world where we, we still have systems like democracy and capitalism that have their flaws, but also have you know some of the some of the positives that came in that seventy five year period. Um, but you, know, you do have these sort of existential threats like climate change, and you also just have, and, and we, this affects all of us, but I would imagine especially millennials, the amount of information being thrown at you 24-7 um, to sort of get a hold or, or to, to get of your money, your attention, your emotions, whatever it is, is so overwhelming. And even you and I have a difference where I don't have to wake up and look at Twitter because I'm 48, and my life doesn't require uh, social media in the way that it does for yours, right? And so you're tethered to a screen even even more than I am. Um, and, and the information flow is just overwhelming and feels overwhelmingly negative. How do you sort of deal with all of that? Is, do, you, I mean, do you feel like the best of the world has happened, and now you're sort of stuck with what's left? Or, or are you optimistic?
1: I think I'm more optimistic. I think saying that the best of the world is over and we're stuck with what's left is like, is is overly pessimistic. There are days when like, yeah, it it feels like everything is going to shit. It's really hard sometimes to get on Twitter and to read the news and then to, you know, pick up your bootstraps and go on with the rest of your day. But but I, I think that... I mean, I personally have to maintain a fundamental optimism, otherwise it's it's not worth it. I wouldn't be able to get up and go to work and do the work that I do. And and I think that the way that I deal with it personally, I can't speak for, for other people, is just um, reprioritizing connection. Um, I think that what... The constant bombardment of of news and media and social media and getting just completely addicted to our screens has done is create a, a real sense of isolation in people, and I think that's something that, you know, is not limited to my generation. I think Gen Z is dealing with the impacts of that. Um, Maybe even more intensely because of the way that the the pandemic affected schooling and their ability to to see each other in real life. But I think that what, and, and
0: a lot of them are teenagers, so just hormonally, they're right,
1: totally. It's just a tough. It's just a really tough time. But I think that the best way to combat that feeling of pessimism and anxiety is to just reprioritize connection and and you know seeing people face to face. And and that's why I do come into the office. It's it's funny, like I. I the strategic idea of like having access to, to people has occurred to me, but it also just makes me feel like a human going in and seeing people and having conversations. And you know, that, that is really important. It brings me kind of back to a, a healthy baseline.
0: All right. And the last question I want to do kind of, as Hugo likes to say, a, a hard pivot and it directly reflects a conversation that I just had with my daughter an hour ago, um, which is both of my kids, especially Abby, um, It really doesn't like, let's just say Abby, because Lyle is actually pretty good at languages. She doesn't like languages. She doesn't understand why she needs to speak another language. Her view is the entire world is basically learning English, whether we like it or not. And technology eliminates a lot of the language gaps anyway. You chose to learn German. I don't think you grew up speaking it, right? So it's it's a decision that you made. Mm -hmm. um, And that comes with a cost, and that you had to invest time and resources to do so. but you happy you did it? Was it worth the time? Do you recommend that in today's world of technology, people put in the effort to learn a separate language?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm biased, obviously. but but absolutely. and and I think there are a few reasons why. I think the ability to think in another language has made me more intentional about, speaking my own mother tongue, I think it, it forces you to think through what you're saying and how you're saying it, the impact that it might have. But I also think, and this is maybe a more broad take on that question, is like existing in a culture that is is foreign to the one that you grew up in, which for me was me you know, studying abroad in Germany and doing an internship in Germany and living there different, during different points of my life, it really engenders empathy and it is really, I think, important for everyone to have experiences in their life of feeling like the foreigner or feeling like the minority or somebody who doesn't quite fit in for, for whatever reason. And that has done a lot for me in terms of my personal growth, in terms of my outlook on, on you know, the, the world and political situations. And, and I think it's, it's, it's just a really important skill to have. And it, it you know, personally has done a lot for me. I ended up marrying somebody who is half German and and the fact that I can communicate with my mother-in-law in her native language is something that I know is really. Oh,
0: that, that may have pros and cons, but yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it has scored me points. I'll say, no, it's, it's been, it's been really important for her to be able to feel like she can be fully expressed in my presence. And that's something that's really, that's really special. And I feel like I can connect with my German friends and my, my, you know, German family in a different way because of that.
0: All right. Hey, Kelsey, thank you so much for coming on. You were fantastic. And uh, hopefully the world now has a more positive uh, opinion of millennials because of you.
1: Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Thanks for having me.